Clint Haywood is the novelist and freelance writer who has written for Overland, Mianjin, Southerly and Reviews Books for national publications. He has been awarded multiple domestic and international residencies, has been shortlisted for the Walter Stone Life Writing Award, and he won the Jim Hamilton Unpublished Manuscript Award. His novel, Love Machine, is published by Penguin, and he currently teaches novel writing at Macquarie University. Love Machine is a story about a man who supplements his dole payments by working in a sex shop in King's Cross. Something like Henry Miller's The Rosy Crucifixion, the story is a glimpse into the underworld of desire, and the jaded Spencer makes his way through the cross without judgment or entanglement until it comes to Libya. Exploring a metaphysics of love, the love machine is graphic, unrelenting, and yet, yet offers a corrupted or at least a grounded redemptive arc. Clint, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed today. Uh, it's lovely to have you. Um, and I'd love to start with my first question. Can you tell me about how the idea of love machine came about? I came about quite organically, really. Um, I had this job, as you said, working at, well, you talked about the novel, but I had this job in real life, working a graveyard shift in an adult shop in King's Cross. Uh, it was something like 10 at night until eight in the morning. Um, my boss was a bit scary, but an incredibly kind of larger than life character. And I soon kind of, came to see that this red light nocturnal world is a place that probably not many people knew about, really. Um, my colleagues were kind of drug dealers or people who just got out of prison. A lot of um, migrants who were on student visas who were working too many hours. Some of them got arrested while I was actually there in the store. Uh, you never knew really what kind of customer was going to come in or the types of incredibly intimate conversations you might suddenly have with someone who's looking to buy a certain type of thing. And to be honest, even though the hours were shocking and I spent a lot of time seriously kind of sleep deprived, I enjoyed going to work because I never knew what was going to happen. Um, so I was privy to this close up rich world and all these kind of, kind of individual characters I was meeting and I really, so I sort of wanted to just make a record of it, really, not just the place, but the people I met almost to pay tribute to some of these people who sort of lived in the shadows and also capture some of the changes that were going on in King's Cross at the time as it was changing rapidly from what it had once been. Because I think that's one of the things that I really uh, sort of loved reading The Love Machine was because there was this completely, um, you know, sort of unique gaze into a world that does, you know, sort of for many of us just remain um, sort of uh, impenetrable and, you know, sort of uh, and strange and, you know, sort of completely outside the realm of, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, most people's experience. 
And yet in reading the novel, what was so well done was the way that uh, characters, um, you know, sort of were captured in a way that was, uh, you know, sort of never done in such a way as to um, marginalise them or to turn them. It was it, it was your ability to characterise them without sort of turning it into a, a, a freak show or, or a, a sort of, a, which was ironic given, you know, sort of the amount of shows <laughs> that were going on um, and the types of shows. But I, I think that that walking that line between, you know, sort of ensuring that your characters had enough uh, sort of dimension um, to feel human um, must have been, was that challenging or did you find that, you know, sort of in terms of finding the language for doing that? Uh, I don't think I was ever not going to be compassionate towards the way I drew the characters. And I guess a lot of the people I met who in that world already are marginalised in a certain way. But when you really dig into the drama of everyday people's lives, I mean, they're all in their own way, just wanting to find love, find acceptance, get, get through as best they can, not do harm to other people, really. Um, and it was also an incredibly multicultural world. And I think that was a big part of just wanting to um, capture that sense of what was going on in Sydney at the time as well. Uh, and then I think, uh, you know, sort of the degree to which, um, you know, sort of Love Machine does have that, uh, you know, sort of beating pulse, you know, that sort of real sense of, of, um, of character and of, 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 of a locale that felt so real. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way that, uh, you know, sort of King's Cross is as much a part of, you know, sort of the story and the story um, world as is, you know, sort of in many respects, the characters? Uh, well, the place was very important for the story, obviously, and in some ways I didn't have to think too hard about that aspect of it as I was there. Um, and I didn't really begin in any way of thinking that this I would write a book set there. I really um, was an aspiring writer and making notes about my experience was something that I just naturally did. So when I went into that place, um, doing that was just second nature. So I started to build up things, descriptions, anecdotes, fragments, things that happened there. And I guess the place is also, King's Cross is also a very rich place to describe, to bring to life. And that whole idea of, I guess, kind of commodified desire wasn't just confined to the store. The whole surrounding area being, you know, full of prostitutes and strip clubs and people coming there for their kind of hedonistic night out resonated with the same themes so that the geography kind of resonated with the themes of what the story was about as King's Cross being a place. So the place gave a great context as well to, um, 
where how love kind of fits into that kind of commodification of sex and relationships. And yeah, and as I said, King's Cross was going through a lot of change. So the internet was really starting to threaten the DVD industry. A lot of hotels were closing down and being turned into apartment blocks. So the kind of uh, the diversity of who lived in the area was changing. People with kids were starting to appear, which was quite strange. I remember one day my boss kind of saw someone with a stroller, and this is a guy with a kind of porn empire doing every devious thing you can possibly imagine for cash in hand, seeing someone with a stroller and just thinking, what kind of pervert would bring their kids here? <laughs> but the place was changing. Gentrification was really picking up. And I guess what people think of traditionally as King's Cross was disappearing. Iconic buildings and bars and venues were going. And I guess that idea that a lot of us in Australia have about King's Cross because of all the cultural baggage from all the stories and TV series that feed that kind of idea, the salaciousness of it, was not really the true picture anymore as it was changing with gentrification, for example. Look, um, I think that it, without sort of suggesting that uh, I guess aspiring writers need to go and live wherever they plan to tell their story for, for a number of years, um, I, I think that your uh, sort of instance is, is, is one where it, it shows that depth of engagement that is required of, of a writer to sort of really bring to the page an immersive and rich world because that's certainly the experience that I had in, in, in reading Love Machine. So how long was that process of, um, you know, sort of at what point did you think, hey, I've got enough jottings, I think this is a novel, you, you know, sort of what, what was the, the time and the experience of that, that writing process? It probably took about three years, really, um, because when I started, as I said, I didn't know I would turn it into a book. So when I would be at work, I would just write short passages, um, not necessarily narrative scenes in any way, but descriptions of the place, conversations I had, things that happened, things I was curious about that I could write my way further into to reveal in the writing. I'm a big believer in that idea that you see much more standing still than actually moving forward. So yeah, for a long time, I just kept making sketches and it probably started to come together when I did have an experience of meeting one night this um, streetwalker who came in and casually told me about all the times she'd been assaulted and drugged and as if it was no big deal, as if this is something that happens to everybody, which I just found kind of incredibly shocking. Um, and after she left, this kind of horrifying sort of lingering feeling of that maybe I should have been able to help her in some way stayed with me. And I think out of that feeling of, I don't know, loss or remorse, I kind of built the character of her out of that interaction. 
and the feeling that she generated in me. And the character was also half based on, well, on a woman who I'd briefly been going out with, so I collapsed these two characters. And I think once I kind of had the experience of meeting the person who would sort of become the catalyst for the love interest in the book is when I think it really started to come together much more in a narrative sense in my head as far as making a decent start on kind of pulling it together. The parts of the book were also set in um, Reevesby, where I grew up. Um, but once I started thinking of it as a novel, it probably took about two years and um, quite a few drafts. I didn't find that I could really um, write down or plan it out or map it out on paper, all the different narrative arcs. I think I was too terrified I'd destroy something about the process. But whatever was happening, I was on my way. Something was working and I didn't want to jeopardise that. And I think that kind of speaks a bit to that idea that um, writers have that you should hold the idea loosely of the narrative because there's something about, I don't know, concretizing it into words which robs, robs it off its flux and takes out the possibility. So even when I tried to think in that way of planning, um, thinking that, you know, all these other writers do all these elaborate plans and there's something wrong with me, my mind would just go blank and that blankness seemed to suggest um, failure. So I kind of steered away from the idea of planning out of the sort of um, uh, kind of voodoo that it wasn't a good place to go. And yet it's kind of fascinating um, because, uh, you know, in, in many respects it is, you know, it, it is love that, that kind of creates that uh, sort of narrative arc and, and that creates that wonderful sense of, of a novel um, as a satisfying whole. Um, and I guess one of the things that I find fascinating is because, you know, when you think of the metaphysics of love, you actually think of ideas that, well, you know, I, I think of love as this sort of idea that, um, you know, it, it, it must by, you know, sort of its own sort of metaphysical quality, uh, you know, sort of transgress and cross every boundary. And, of course, you know, we love the idea of love crossing boundaries, you know, sort of certain boundaries feel fine for love to transcend, you know, class, um, you know, sort of we race, you know, all of these sorts of things. But then, of course, there are, you know, sort of gender, um, you know, all of those things. And, and then yet there is also, I think, you know, sort of ones where it becomes uncomfortable, where, you know, sort of age because, you know, if you have a metaphysics of love and, you know, love, um, you know, sort of transcends all, does it transcend all, you know, sort of in, in terms of gender? Because because obviously there's an interesting sort of suggestion of, of you know, sort of an age gap, um, you know, sort of Livia is, I think, 18, you, you know, there, there is, was, 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 that, was, that, was that right? Or I might not have got that right, but was she younger? Um, I, th I think I just saw that. But, you, you, you know, so, so, so I, I find that interesting because I think that we sometimes have gotten to a place where we don't realise that literature is one of those places where we transgress, where we, explore, where we explore the boundaries rather than, you know, sort of trying to uphold or police them. And that's something that I always find fascinating because I think that something dies in literature when we police things too much. 
um, in any thoughts? Uh, I think in relation to um, love and between those characters, I think really, I don't know if he really did fall in love with her or if he convinced himself he was because he wanted to save her in some ways. But I think what also came up for the character was, well, he was genuinely feeling all those feelings for her, but I guess in a transgressive way, he was also thinking that, um, you know, it was potentially shameful for him to present a kind of young single mother, homeless ex-prostitute to his family and relatives as a kind of um, valid romantic interest in his life, which potentially had some kind of future in a, you know, conservative Sydney that he came from. Unless Julia Roberts, of course, <laughs> which, Kia, which, you know, sort of did it in a very sort of safe and, and you know, sort of, um, you know, it really was quite a conservative, um, you know, sort of narrative in many respects. And, and, and I think that you certainly avoided that neat Hollywood, you know, sort of approach. But, um, you, you know, like the, the, there was so much energy in that um, because it, it did feel as though those lines that we like to keep, you know, sort of, you know, sort of um, locked and, and border tight were, were, you know, sort of really being pushed, um, you know, sort of through your writing and, and, and you know, sort of isn't that, um, you know, what literature does in so many ways um, or, or doesn't do sometimes to its own detriment. Um, were you sort of uh, were you interested in in those kinds of um, you know sort of I guess those those transgressive um, you know sort of movements of literature and, and did you have um, you know because literature is 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 filled with those from you know sort of um, from William Burroughs to actually I, I think there's 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 a sort of um, and, and this is what the Rosie Crucifix was doing as well. It was it was it was pretty much um, sort of tapping into that, uh, I guess, almost a, a medieval um, aesthetic where we weren't so troubled by um, you know sort of <laughs> propriety um, and and you know sort of digging into into a sort of a, a deeper way of being human. But did you did you have um, you know sort of I guess literary influences and um, antecedents that were that were shaping and helping you to tell this story? Uh, there's no doubt that this whole kind of not nocturnal world is a kind of um, grungy place, which I guess has a context in 90s writing as well. Um, but I couldn't help drawing upon, say, Bukowski, which is a kind of, I don't know, an apprenticeship reading for many um, young writers, but also, it's interesting that you drew attention to Henry Miller's Rosie Crucifixion because it was actually reading the Rosie Crucifixion that actually made me want to be a writer in the first place. Just the absolute energy that he captured in those books. 
I don't think he necessarily had a big message to sell except for trying to be alive in the most possible way he could be alive. Um, and I think I saw an energy in Henry Miller that I actually wanted to somehow kind of articulate in my own life. So Henry Miller was definitely a big influence. It's Interestingly, Henry Miller was also a big influence on Bukowski as well. Um, but I'd always been drawn to those kind of writers who were trying to uh, write in order not to, not to make things up, but to make sense of the world and their kind of place in the world, um, as opposed to, I don't know, as opposed to, say, writers who might be writing from a, an avenue of, say, pushing a social justice agenda or something like that. For me, writing is always much more about um, it's parallel and completely tied up with self-actualization, really. Um, but Bukowski, and I also have to say, I was reading a lot of um, Michelle Welbeck at the time. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Especially Atomized and Platform, those two kind of big early books that he had. Because um, they've also, they're, I think they've both got a very big <coughs> register in a way. They can be incredibly sparse and moving and then over the top, ridiculously hilarious at the same time. In, so they, they vary their tone. Um, they compress material really well and create, I don't know, a lot of sort of longing and melancholy, which I really like the feeling of. Look, I think what I was thinking about was um, actually, because uh, it, was, it was a long time, um, when I and, and of course I think there is this sort of genealogy as well because you know when you think about um, Orwell and Down and Out in Paris uh, you know sort of with it's very difficult like it's got some difficult scenes in in that but also uh, Ananian's diaries where she talks about uh, you know sort of she and Miller and this wrestling that was going on to try and find a language that somehow you know sort of it, it just channeled life you know, sort of rather than, you know, sort of thinking about, uh, I, I guess, a formal, uh, you know, sort of constraint or in terms of, uh, I guess, um, defamiliarised, you know, rather than that, I guess, academic or, um, you know, sort of formal approach to, to novel writing where language is, is, is troubled and arbitrary and, you know, sort of all of those things, there's this kind of idea that it's a life force that you can that you can sort of tap into and you know sort of produce effects on the page that in some way or, or the other um, channel that life force and capture it, which of course got so problematized later, you know, sort of with post-structuralists and postmodern um, you know, sort of ideas around literature. Um, and, and of course, you know, sort of I think as writers. Um, you're, you're, you, there is always this sort of awareness of telling the story that you need to tell at a moment in time and then the degree to which as a writer you're also subject to the forces that are at play in any one given moment. Um, and, and, and so, you, you know, sort of I guess um, that comes into that idea of 
uh, I mean, how difficult it was to uh, sort of get uh, a love machine, um, you know, sort of accepted the, the process there and, and also in the reception of a text because I think there's often a perception that there's just sort of, um, you know, sort of, you know, good writing and, and, and bad writing and, and good writing just ends up, you know, sort of catching on and being classics turned into a classic, whereas other writing doesn't, whereas actually there's a machinery at play, isn't there, that, that sort of generates, um, you know, sort of, I guess, the, 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 the sort of particular aesthetic of an, of an age. Um, so maybe a little bit about that process of the 90s and getting, um, you know, sort of Love Machine accepted and, and, and published. Uh, yeah, um, I think just to go back a little bit, I think what you were saying about yeah, that time that, say, Henry Miller was writing, he was the antithesis of form or constraint in any way. I mean, he, he thought he was Rousseau and he was going to be, you know, the first man to ever really exist in text and wrangle that life force in a way that no one had ever seen before and had the idea that, you know, best thought, first thought was the best thought and, you know, he's not going to edit and... It's quite easy to look back at a lot of his work and think, actually, I think he could have edited quite a bit more of some of this stuff. But you cannot deny the, the sheer violence and the force and the, just the verve for life that is harnessed in what he's done. Um, but as far as me getting Love Machine accepted, um, I've got to say... It was kind of a dream run in a way. Tell us. <laughs> I, I wrote, I finished it. I was probably lucky to hear of an agent who was, had been in a big publishing house um, in a big agency and was just going out and starting her own agency and was keen to sign new authors. So I sent her... Um, the manuscript, and she responded quite enthusiastically, really keen to sign me up the first place I sent it. But as long as I knew that, you know, I needed, there were a few structural things that I needed to re-edit and work on her with before she would send it out to publishers. Um, she was almost warning me, but, you know, there was no way I was precious about it. I would have done anything she said, really to try and get past the gatekeepers and of the literary world. So she gave me a kind of report. I did a rewrite, um, probably two rewrites. She went out and sent it out to probably half a dozen publishers. One came back tentative, two came back very keen, which she thought, you know, she kept trying to tell me, actually, you know, you're very lucky. This isn't happening very often. Obviously, Penguin was the front runner because um, I also really liked the idea of the imprint, Hamish Hamilton, which has quite a nice, you know, old world literary reputation. It wasn't a bad place to be as far as historical stable mates are concerned. Um, and it was also decent money um, they were offering. Well, I mean, it sounds like decent money when it's offered in one chunk, but if you you know, stretch it out over three years, writing is never, you can never come to writing for the money. Um, but she was surprised with what they were offering. We signed, 
with Penguin. And then that was probably after you sign, you've usually got about a year before you're going to see it come out. So that year was another um, probably three rewrites. Luckily, I got to work with a very um, senior figure at Penguin, um, Ben Ball, who was the head of uh, Hamish Hamilton in Australia. And we did another probably, yeah, three drafts before a final edit phase and during which I just kept waiting for them to come to their senses basically and realise what a huge mistake they'd made and how on earth have we ever signed up this book. But that did not happen, thankfully. So, so can I just ask you the sorts of changes that you were asked to make? Because I, I think that it's, you know, sort of I think when you're starting out writing and you've done a draft, you've done a number of drafts, you know, you've worked really tirelessly on it and it feels like you've reached your limit. Um, you know, how many times would you say <laughs> you, you felt you'd reached your limit before, you know, sort of you could actually definitively hand out off that um, draft and, and how much work was being asked of you during, you know, sort of, because I'm just thinking in a, in a sort of in terms of real time before you get um, picked up by Penguin, you've already been asked to go over, you know, sort of a, a substantial number of words twice, um, you know, just with your agent before. And obviously you would feel different once you had a firm agreement um, from Penguin. But I, I think it's just really important to, to sort of flag the amount of work um, that, that writers are doing um, way before they, you know, like before that book, um, you know, hits the shelves. I mean, because that, that's three years of your life before, um, you know, sort of before your agent. And then, you know, sort of at two full drafts or more just restructuring, you know, sort of copying and pasting or is this sort of line editing? What, what, what sort of stuff are you getting asked to do? I think initially with her it was a case of um, just from some glaring inconsistencies and that some of the characters um, didn't have a kind of satisfying arc that they were perhaps just left hanging a bit. So it was really... I think it was just things to do with consistency. They weren't major structural changes that I was asked to make by the agent. But when we got to, yeah, and it's true. I mean, by the time you've, if you really tallied it up, you've done about 16 or 18 drafts by the time you get through it. Um, but with Penguin, it was more to do with the tone of the voice um, which was kind of interesting because I kind of had this tone originally at the beginning where I was kind of almost apologising for writing this kind of, about this kind of material, um, whereas I was writing about it but at the same time playing it down in a way unconsciously that I didn't realise like, oh, please, yes, you know, I'm writing about this stuff but, please still like me, it's not really me. And they picked up on that tone in the conversation that we had where I didn't even realise I was doing it. And once I was free of that, I could actually write it in a much more kind of um, dramatically tonal kind of way. So I think it was with Penguin the main issue was 
yeah, that I had some kind of unrecognised emotional baggage really which was affecting the voice in a way which was kind of detrimental to the overall arc of the story. That's that's such an interesting, uh, you know, sort of thing. And, and I guess you really benefited from having a, probably an experienced and, you know, sort of a highly uh, well-read editor uh, who, who was able to pick up on those sort of more subtle nuances, which, you know, I think is, is such an important thing because I, I think that perhaps um, these days we're not always getting, you know, sort of writers aren't always getting that uh, sort of level of editing as well because often uh, sort of editors are either freelance or, you know, sort of they've been downgraded in terms of how much they're asked to do or what there's or what state the manuscript needs to be in um, before it actually gets across the, the, the board and, and, you know, sort of that brilliant um, sort of uh, partnership of, of editor and writer um, where so much magic um, happens um, when you just need that subtle, you know, sort of comment of, you know, don't apologise um, for the story that you're telling and, and then suddenly you just sort of scales fall from your eyes and, and you can sort of make those wonderful um, registers because there is, I mean, there's no doubt that the, the narration um, is, is it, because of its, um, I guess, its, its, its a sort of transparency in some ways where it, it's, it's, it, it is just allowing the story to happen. Um, you know, it's definitely a you know strength um, of of the of of, of love machine. Um, so, think, oh yeah, I was going to say, I think in some ways that's right. Those kind of writer editor relationships that we you know read about from the eighties or the nineties, perhaps just in the mainstream, don't really exist to a great deal anymore. Whereas you know, I was told sort of straight up front that, yeah, you know, normally we can take on an author and, you know, you can sort of have a few sort of low apprentice-type books as you're sort of, you know, finding your feet that will publish, but those kind of days are over and they're not going to nurse any valiant failures anymore, which was the kind of the phrase that was put to me. Those yeah. are gone. I think it also means that perhaps literature stays a little bit safer because, you know, like I, I guess uh, some of the writers who might be writing, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the more, um, you know, I guess that, 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 that more uh, transgressive or, um, you know, sort of unconventional narratives um, you know, sort of they may be the ones that might need a little bit more input, but where, you know, sort of that new energy voice it's, and perspective comes from, whereas the ones who've gone through, <laughs> you know, lots and lots of edits and, and ASA mentorships and all of that sort of thing, um, you know, sort of they, 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 they may, because um, there, there is something about manicured literature I think where it loses some of that that sort of life force, and and also when we think about the history, you know, sort of the, of the literary canon, where it wasn't so much about um, you know sort of perfection, um, it was it was actually about you know sort of stories and meeting deadlines. So you know you think about Robinson Crusoe, you think about Dickens, you know <laughs> you think about all of those sorts of things. Nobody would have said Dickens, you know, just cut the you know sort of you know, 30,000 words from Bleak House because it's too long <laughs> or, you know, like this one's too short or, or whatever. It was the story that came was the story that you ran with um, and that drive for perfection can have unintended 
um, ill side effects, I, I, I think. Um, but yeah, no, no. So, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's lovely being able to talk to you about these sorts of things. But I mean, in terms of um, the the feeling, I guess, of, of, of that uh, sort of published manuscript and, um, you know, sort of the experience of being a, a published author, um, how, how did you how did you find that? Uh, I'm sure that anyone in that kind of position after, you know, endless years of trying and failing can't help but feel a sense of vindication in a way that finally after all this time the world has actually accepted what you're doing. So it was, it was well, it was fantastic really, but everyone told me enjoy it while you can because it will be a very short ride. Um, so it, and it was good. I was a guest at the Sydney Writers Festival. I was wined and dined with the other Penguin guests. The book was widely reviewed in newspapers and in um, literary journals like the Australian Book Review, which was good because actually it made me realise I wasn't all that interested in reviews as far as PR went, but I wanted it was interesting when someone actually really engaged with your work in a technical or a critical kind of way. Um, so it was good to get that kind of critical engagement. Um, but it was also the book was reviewed in, you know, places like GQ. Um, I, I had an interview in Penthouse. Um, so it was a broad um, kind of range of media but the, surprise, the really surprising thing that happened after it was that very soon after publication, probably a month, I had two parties competing for the film rights, um, which I eventually sold to actor David Wenham because he also lived in King's Cross and was looking for a vehicle uh, that he could actually adapt for the screen as his first writing directing project. So it was interesting because we were both living not far from each other and I'd always see him at the local coffee shop and sort of tap him, hey, you know, how's the film project going? Which he'd sort of give me updates. But because he was very busy with other projects, this was dragging on for five years until it got right to the point really where um, they were about to start shooting in a post-production partner dropped out and the whole project just collapsed overnight, which was um, a bit disappointing. Um, I was sort of planning, you know, where will I buy my unit sort of thing. Um, but I can say that for those five years that he renewed his option, he basically paid my car registration and insurance for five years. So that was a very practical Good thing that came out of being a published writer, really. <laughs> the car register. <laughs> so, in other words, you you weren't you know sort of having had your rights bought, you you weren't putting down you know sort of the deposit on on a unit at that point. <laughs> no, no, because you know all these years go by, and you you know how much you're going to get when it's goes into production, and all these you know film ticket, say, a percentage of sales and, you know, oh, my God, what if the 
what if it gets released in foreign markets, the film, and then there's a there's a book tie-in, and you know you've got this whole fantasy world going on about how your life's going to change. But no, that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, and I guess I mean th- this is one of the the realities of of, of writing, isn't it? Because I think I think you know sort of a lot of you know sort of a recurring theme, especially among literary writers um you know sort of who might win prizes one year um but then very quickly find themselves back in a place where really you don't necessarily have much of an advantage over any anyone else which can be really difficult because you know logically speaking you would think in a in a sort of a fairly healthy um sort of literary ecosystem um you know sort of you would have sort of ongoing um you know sort of relations with publishers you would have ongoing connections contracts you know book deals and all of those sorts of things which sometimes I think do happen with genre fiction and, and commercial fiction but often um you know sort of literary writers can find themselves um sort of back uh, you know, I hate to use this word, but kind of spruiking, you know, sort of their wares as as though they haven't just had that experience. Uh, you know, that's just from not from other um, sort of writers that I, I've spoken to, and and of course that that's a really uh, sort of tough. That's a tough. That's a tough place um, to, to to write from, isn't it? Because you know, in some sense, there is such an importance to you know, sort of, I guess that. Um, you know, writers need such a tremendous engine and belief system in order to sustain them over the length of time that a book takes um, because it's not over and done with in, 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 in a few weeks and it's not lucrative. And so I guess without, you know, sort of that, um, you know, sort of that, uh, that engine, that belief system, that, you know, sort of hope, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, it can be very difficult to, to write out of that. And I, I think that that's something um, that perhaps we don't address enough as, as you know, sort of as, as how essential. Uh, it's, I think, do you know what I always think of, and you'll, you'll probably think I'm crazy, but I always think of Tinkerbell and the way that, you know, sort of if, if children don't believe in her, <laughs> she ceases to exist. And, and so you kind of need the, the clapping hand to bring her back to life Um, and I think that sometimes you know sort of I think sometimes Australian culture it's probably not just Australian culture but I I know that other places where there's a healthier more thriving system um, you know sort of I I think uh, you know sort of Australian sort of public sometimes forgets the degree to which writers need to be believed in and valued um, and in a sustained way um, in in, in order to keep writing because it is so much a a, a thing that comes from the heart um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think after that, that's right, after that first book, you definitely cannot help but feel the pressure to come up with something within the next few years, even just to prove that you weren't a, a fluke, basically. Um, and really, you do have to start from scratch to spruik your wares. The only thing you've got going for you is that you've already established a relationship with an agent, perhaps, who is going to, you know, prioritise reading your stuff in a genuine way because you already have a relationship with them. Um, but if they perhaps don't like what you give them, they're under no obligation to try and sell it, and they won't because they don't want to take a product that they themselves don't believe in back to all their network of people 
in the publishing houses that they work with and, you know, trying to keep good relationships within their own way. So you are back to spruiking from, from square one in a way, unless you're, you know, an incredibly savvy writer and you've marked out a brand for yourself as well and... Or independently wealthy, where you can just do, dedicate, you know, huge tracts of time to, to this problem of what <laughs> that next book is. But I guess the reason that I wanted to sort of draw attention to that is because I, I feel like, you know, because we, we both teach people writing, and I think that there is a lot of, um, you know, sort of, in, there's there's a lot of uh, struggle that goes into writing, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and you, you know, the, the, there is this, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, a, a need for resilience and and my 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 impression just after years of 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 teaching is is the degree to which most writers tend to feel that their experience of you know like alienation and struggle um you know sort of is individual and particular to them um whereas i i think that the more that we acknowledge that it's it's, it's often a shared experience um and and that, that that there is because there's something so intrinsic about ourselves tied up into our writing um we do often uh you know sort of experience Experience, uh, you know, sort of these doubts and, and these, um, you know, sort of rejections and tribulations incredibly intensely. Um, and, and, and so I, I think it is really important to sort of have this sense, well, you know, there are going to be disappointments and there are going to be rejections and, and you know, the path is long and it's not necessarily a lucrative one. Um, and if it is, it's often short-lived and, you know, all of those things. Just, I guess, because I have a sense of, I actually have a sense of moral obligation to students where I want them to, to have this sense um, that if they are embarking on that path, that, that, that there is, um, you know, there, there are some sort of obstacles and I would prefer them to be sort of forewarned and forearmed and just know that they're in really good company um, than to think that, you know, sort of there's something particularly, <laughs> you know, sort of wrong with them, you know, in all of, the, in, in all of this. Um, so I guess just to finish off, um, do you have some tips? Um, and, of course, they can be writerly tips. They don't have to be, you know, sort of existential life tips. They could just, just be, you know, sort of keep a notebook um, and, and write regularly. But do you have some tips for writers as we bring this to a close? I think what you kind of just alluded to there a bit is important in that um, writing... To people outside of it, they don't really get it, but writing is a very high stakes kind of inner drama. It really is. You really do build it up in life and death proportions, in success and failure. And as you said, you do feel the knocks to the teeth probably much harder than other people do. Um, and I, I think I would say that unless you are driven pathologically to do it and you have feel like you don't have any other choice but to do it, I probably would say don't do it, really, because it's not necessarily going to be a happy journey unless you are kind of automatically committed to it in a way which feels vocational, which feels so enmeshed with just living your life that it's an essential part of kind of who you are and just how you actually cope with life in the world. Um, uh, and even, even now I still start to think, you know, have I made a massive mistake in 
pouring 30 years of my life into chasing these kinds of dreams and what for. But as I say, um, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. But um, I think in a general sense, like as I said earlier, perhaps you always see more standing still than thinking about forward propulsion as a kind of technical kind of tip for sinking down into the kind of writing and curiosity in which you'll actually bring something unique, individual and um, new from your work. Um, I think it's also easy, probably when we're starting out, to want to imitate our heroes, the people who've excited us and brought us to writing because it's those voices that have inspired us with their energy and we maybe, you know, naturally want to bring that own energy into our own work because of how they make us feel. So it's easy to want to write like them, partly because I think when we're starting, we don't trust ourselves either. So we sort of, it can be easier to imitate in the hope that no one will notice kind of what we're doing. It will sort of, you know, walk sandpaper over the cracks and it will just look like it's us who are speaking. But I think often what we like about those voices that attracted us to want to do this is that they're different or unique in their own way and that they speak to us or spoke to us in a way other writers didn't. And therefore, I think if we want to be unique in our own way, there has to you really has to come the point where you make the conscious de decision to stop imitating, come out of the kind of unconscious trance of imitation and to kind of step forward into the darkness and to kind of trust that what you say will either make its way or it won't make its way. So I think for myself, I often just have to stop and ask myself, what do I really think about X? Or how does why really make me feel? Or what does it look like to me? Because if we don't connect with that truth of our own feelings or experience, we won't have that kind of authentic shimmer. That's the same thing that attracted us to our heroes in the first place. And if we are authentic and true in our own way, then perhaps other people will be drawn to our voice. Clint. Thank you. That is a truly beautiful way uh, to bring our uh, talk to an end. Um, so I would love to thank you uh, again for being so generous with your time and with your insights and with your wisdom. Uh, so thank you. Uh, and we'll have to do this again. Thanks for having me. It was really nice to talk. As ever, thank you so much for joining us here at From the Lighthouse. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please remember to like us at wherever you listen to your podcasts and don't forget to share your favourite podcasts with friends and family. See you next time.